What's up, everybody? It's the Monday Morning Analyst here on this August ooh, 8th of 2016. Welcome. I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, I did. I took it off, actually. So I uh, got a little bit of a downtime, a little bit of time to reset and relax, and uh, it was quite enjoyable. But here we are on the Monday, ready to look at the past weekend's card. Really, there was only one big one. Um, it was UFC Fight Night 92. So here's what we're going to do today. It wasn't that the card wasn't good. It was actually really good, uh, for the most part, anyway. Um, but there wasn't necessarily really... There were good performances. There were great performances. But nothing really stood out to me as a moment in, in time I could freeze and then say, wow, we should really take a deeper dive into this. It just wasn't enough there. Now, there again, were some pretty you know, borderline exemplary performances. So here's what we're going to do. You know, Normally, this podcast is in three parts. We're going to do like a mini version of that today, just because I don't want to... The last podcast was over an hour, and some of you guys are complaining it's going too long, and I think you're probably right to some extent. So for this one, I'm not going to just overdo it. We're going to really condense it, and we're going to look at the card today like we normally do, but rather than having this extended middle segment, we're just going to do like a mini version of that inside the first segment, basically, when we look at some of the takedown defense of Cub Swanson. Uh, nothing too major, nothing too serious, but uh, just a little bit of a... Uh, Normally bigger than what we do in the first segment, a lot less than what we do in the second, and then we'll just move on. Plus, there's no fights this upcoming weekend. So, All right, but without further ado, let's get to it. UFC Fight Night 92 took place, uh, as I pull my notes up, here at the Vivint Smart Home Arena. This was the UFC's debut in Salt Lake City. It aired on Fox Sports 1. They announced the main event winner at 1.25 in the morning, according to my DVR, which is abusive on the part of Fox Sports 1 to do that. Really just... Just exploitative of the audience, quite honestly. They, they, I mean, there's really no business doing that. Sorry, there's a, there's just not. Um, the attendance, not that great. 6,689 and for a total gate of 481,000. A little bit more like a Bellator event um, in that regard. For a first time at a new place, the attendance was a little low. Uh, I thought it would be a little higher, maybe closer to 10,000, but... Let me look at the uh, Vivint Smart Home Arena's capacity. Let's see. It has a capacity. Yeah, I mean, it can hold up to 20,000, you know. Um, so that's not a great number for <clears throat> number for attendance. But then again, the car didn't necessarily feature uh, a ton of bigger names. Although it did have some hometown guys like uh, Court McGee. Uh, all right, so the uh, we'll start top down. So it, the main card, six fights aired on Fox Sports 1. The main event, Yair Rodriguez in a featherweight contest taking on Alex Caceres. Um, and everyone says Caceres, but I'm told it's pronounced much more closely to um, Caceres. And Rodriguez wins via split decision 46-49, 48-47, 48-47. I do not know how you give four rounds to Alex Caceres. Now, certainly I can give him two, um, but I can't give him three, and I definitely can't give him four. I don't know what. I don't know what that judge saw. Even if you don't have really a necessarily a great understanding of striking, and not all of us do, um, it was pretty easy to tell who was A, landing more, and B, who was landing with greater um, power for the most part. Certainly, uh, Caceres had his moments, but enough to give him four rounds? That seems like a grotesque error. In any event, it was actually a pretty good fight. Um, it didn't... The fifth round wound up being a pr pretty good round because the third and the fourth kind of the action dropped off a little bit, um, so it ended well. What do you say about both guys? So, in terms of Yair Rodriguez, um, shows continuing improvement, um, but this fight to me was, like, the five-round fight is really great that we're seeing more of these because it's giving you a 
better view of someone's game, right? Not just because there's more time to throw and more time to act, but obviously your performance in your fifth round and your fourth round, with a few ex exceptions here or there, it's not going to be the same in your first. And what winds up happening is that it makes you vulnerable in ways that we don't necessarily normally see in the first or in a three-round fight. So for me, like what was really uh, noticeable about this is like on the good side, obviously he's really tricky with his, I mean, any number of kicks he throws. He faints one way and then faints the exact same way behind it and then throws something completely different. So you bite on a faint and you think even if that faint comes again, you think you know what's coming and it doesn't. Um, he goes upstairs, downstairs really well, right? He'll throw like a oblique kick and then there's a spinning back fist right behind it. Keeps you uh, honest. Um, he can do... You know, he does a lot of jumping switch attacks when he sees you walking off at an angle, right? Um, jumping switch roundhouse, uh, wheel kicks, um, uh, you name it. Like, there's just a really complete arsenal of kicks. But to me, like, the big knock on him was not that he didn't fight well. He did. Uh, he obviously fought really well. But a lot of those striking combos, while effective early and really good at getting the opponent to shell, um, a lot of it is just... What winds up happening is it gets the opponent to really back away, cover up, which is good for casters. But here's, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. As the fight went on and went on and went on, I wonder what would happen if somebody was really good defensively by cutting off themselves, like themselves moving at an angle or jamming him. Like if someone throws a spinning back kick, you have a couple of options. One, you can try to block and absorb it. Two, you can, you know, back up out of the way. Three, you can step at an angle, maybe counter. Uh, and four, you can move into them. And when you move into them, it's called jamming. The more Caceres jammed him, especially in that third and fourth round, you saw um, you saw Rodriguez have a lot of problems, especially in that side of that tight boxing range. He's good really close. He's good really far. Sort of in this space, he's got some issues. Um, it's not to say he doesn't have a jab. He does. But his there's just... He keeps his opponents on the defense so much, he never really worries too much about his defense. And I wonder that if you could slow the fight down, take away his space, really cut the cage off, and these, of course, are going to be easier said than done, but rather than just reacting in the ways he expects your opponents to react, I think if you get somebody really, really good in there, um, and they're able to much more easily navigate that space, jam him up, get him to constantly back up, which he still has attacks, of course, but... Nevertheless, not really get set in the way he's able to get set. Pump him behind the jab, make him fight on those terms, really narrow the space. His offense, um, it, I, I don't know that he has a second gear to go to. Um, you know, you could take him down. Actually, he's really good at scrambling underneath. He's good at like diving underneath for legs. What happens? Guys get away, then he stands. Again, we saw that with Matt Brown, Johnny Hendricks. I mentioned this a number of times. He's really good about that. He's really good about creating space and elevating guys who are on top of him. So I don't know that he's necessarily a liability that way, but somebody who's like a dedicated wrestle boxer, who's really, really patient and can pick their spots, um, I, I wonder about that. You know, now what that says is he's good enough to compete at least up to that level. And so this this sounds like some big takedown of Yair Rodriguez, and it's really not. Like I was very obviously just like you, very, very impressed. But I was left wondering with some of those questions about what it's going to look like when he get takes that next step to people who, you know, don't necessarily react to his attacks the way that. Um, he necessarily throws them. You know, obviously he's unpredictable, hits you a lot of angles, different times. Again, he's got a whole series of feints that all look similar, and then there's different react, there's different um, strikes thrown at the end of each of them. So he, he's, he's a tough customer, no doubt about it. And again, I don't think that the ground is necessarily some major liability for him. It could be depending on who it is, but 
Um, he's a really great scrambler underneath. But for me, it's, if I wonder if someone's really diligent about pressure, uh, timing, and jamming him, what they could really do. I think that there is something to be said about not him changing his style, but being a little bit more judicious with it. I think if he was, if he did that a little bit more uh, and was a little bit more defensively responsible, because you saw Casares was able to really extend on that left sometimes and caught him clean. The right hand of, of Rodriguez was really down a lot. So, so that's really what I saw from him. From Casares, I was actually pretty impressed. You know, he was able to. I think he did the best he could with trying to close that space. Obviously, it's a lot easier said than done. He did, as I mentioned, have success with his left as well. Had a couple of good takedowns. Didn't really do a whole lot with him, but you know, showing some diversity in his game. And he was able to some extent match Rodriguez with some of the kicks. It looked to me like he was stronger in the clinch, physically stronger, but didn't necessarily have enough to um, technically keep him there or really, I don't know that he had a lot of interest in, in pursuing the fight at that range. So he was only just like a step or two behind. Just It was just the volume of Rodriguez he just didn't have an answer for. Every time he tried to get something going, it was really hard. And even if he got something going, it was hard to follow up on it. Just the amount of this 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 wave after wave after wave of offense from Rodriguez crashing into Caceres. It was just hard to swim through it. And uh, he was able to do it to some extent. Obviously, I did think he took a couple of rounds. But um, strong performance in Rod by Rodriguez in that fifth round. Coming back, really getting back to what he was doing well. Staying on his horse, attacking, getting um, Caceres to cover up. And, uh, and you know, being unpredictable and, and frequent. And that's really his... His strengths. I just don't want him to be so unpredictable and so frequent that somebody really, really good is going to take advantage of that and just uh, stifle him completely. I think if he was just a little bit more judicious with it, um, he'd be he'd be a really, really tough customer. But obviously, he's young and improving, so it's, we'll be curious to see how it goes. In the co-main event, Dennis Bermudez defeated Hani Jason, 30-27, 30-26, 30-27. This was pretty clinical. I mean, if you wanted to give Hani Jason the third round, I suppose if you wanted to, you could. Uh, Bermudez basically that first and second round getting the takedown whenever he wanted. Was that so bad with the Muay Thai? You, ever, you guys notice he would throw with the hands and then lean super far um, with the kick. And when he did, he would be way off the center line and the kick would still land. Typically an inside leg kick, although sometimes on the out, depending on what Hunter Jason was doing because he was switching stances sometimes. Um, but, you know, some decent combinations from... Um, uh, Dennis Bermudez, he doesn't look shop-worn despite some of the wars he's been in. Obviously, his takedowns are still great, potent weapon. He's a great, great featherweight. Um, he has a lot to offer. Honey Jason, I thought you saw something really cool. He would frame for the arm bar, and what would happen is when you frame, you obviously want to go you want to go perpendicular on him as, as much as possible. That's the best angle for the arm bar. And what he would do is as he, as he would do it, he would push against the hips of Bermudez. Bermudez would try to follow, and as a consequence, he would use that to launch himself to roll out of the back of it, which I thought was kind of a nifty move. They didn't have a great camera angle on it, but it was kind of cool how he set that up. He'd get the angle and the frame for the arm bar, push off, get the push back, and then use that to roll, it looked like to me. So, um very good guard from Honey Jason. Maybe not enough, you know. He was saying, "Oh, um, Brian Stan mentioned that if, you know, that Honey Jason told him that if Dennis Bermudez took him down, he would kiss him." Well, you know, I, I you see a lot of this. Jiu-Jitsu can be really powerful, and it needs to be powerful to be um, a functional part of the game. But there's a lot of guys who get really good at it, and they get really good at their game, and they get really good at the guys they're used to rolling with, and then they get comfortable thinking, I can do this in a lot of scenarios. And I it, often there is no carryover to the UFC, or at least not, not as much. You know, He's not helpless off his back by any stretch, but Bermudez was able to take him down and pound on him for two rounds, um, either inside his guard or you know, in, you know, some version of it. 
uh, Talos Laitis taking on Chris Camozzi, defeated him. This was the only sub- this was the only stoppage on the main card via rear naked choke in the third. I mean, Talos Laitis was just all over him from the moment go, man. Finding ways to get that takedown. Camozzi trying to frame, trying to trying to get up on all fours, trying to protect his neck, and then slowly but surely, you saw um, and from, from different takedown and different rides, uh, um, Lightis get one hook in, then the other, and then the body triangle. Uh, we don't really need to go into that. The key detail for me was the hand fighting. Go back and watch the hand fighting in this one. Kamozi does a really good job of... I don't know this to be true, but it looked to me like the kind of hand fighting that maybe one might get from the gi. So, like, one way to protect yourself uh, in the gi is if you can get one... If you can get... Obviously, gi or no gi, you want to get their arm on the other side. Like, if they're trying to choke you this way, you want the arm over here. And one way to do this is to grab the wrist, and then you can grab behind the tricep, and you can pull down on that gi. And that really, I mean, it brings them to you. They can't, there's no choke there, right? That's a really strong way. Uh, it looked like he was doing that on this side, which you can also kind of do depending at what you're trying to do. It's not recommended you want to pull someone down, because that can really give them the scoop. But I've seen some people try to bring other guys down because they feel like they've got more control. They're, they're breaking the other guy's posture, maybe. They just feel like they have more arm to play with to then stop rather than trying to fight with their fingers. It's not recommended. I, I certainly don't recommend it, but I've seen it done. That's not really what took my attention. What caught my attention was how good Talus Lightis was. A lot of guys are like, oh, if I put your arms underneath my arms and I clamp, I've taken away your choke. And that's true if you have both. What Talos Lightius was really good at was getting the hand that was underneath the armpit of Kamozi to control Kamozi's wrist, either the inside wrist or even the far one. If someone behind you, this is like the Marcelo Garcia special, if someone behind you with their arm underneath yours and they're trying to attack you and they grab your wrist, you are in trouble. You need to address that immediately. Now, you can't let go of this one because that will create some problems, but what will end up happening with... What wound up happening with Kamozi was Lightis would take the back, dig a hand under, okay? Um, and, or, sorry, he would have one hand over the. Kamozi would have the one arm draped over him, and he would have like a two on one, or at least a one on one. That left the other arm, usually sometimes the left arm of Lightis, free to fire, so he would fire. So Kamozi would stick the hand up, I believe it was more like this. And what winds up happening is, as a consequence of this, he could then take his other hand and just reach through and grab. And you saw that. So the ending sequence, go back and look. He's grabbing the wrists of Kamozi, which allows him to just get that forearm across. And once he gets here, and then he leans the shoulder in to cover the space, um, it was all she wrote. But the key there, to me, was um, the superior hand fighting of Lightius. Patient, um, diligent, didn't rush it, and really looked before he tried anything. He didn't try to just force stuff through. He waited until he was able to get control under, even underneath the arms of Kamozi to get the wrists behind him. And that, that made all the difference in the world. Um, Santiago Ponzinibbio defeated Zach Cummings. Unanimous decision 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. Both guys have really improved to me. This was a difference between Ponzinibbio and having better hand speed. And maybe a little bit more combination work. Obviously, there were two opposite side stances. Um, Brian Stan made a big note about Zach Cummings circling into his own well, circling towards his own power hand, and which also ended up being the power side of Ponzinibbio. And maybe that's why some of the head kicks landed. I actually find, i got to be honest, man, Zach Cummings has really surprised me in his last couple of fights. 
he has turned into a pretty capable counter striker, man. I, I definitely have to give the guy some credit. I have been impressed with his patience and his understanding of his own weaponry and when to use it and how to use it. Now, the circling issue, maybe he just feels more comfortable circling into his own power. If that means even walking into someone else's own power, I don't know. I have to talk to him about it, but... Um, you know, credit to both guys. Ponzinibbio just had a little bit more speed, a little bit more athleticism, a little bit more dynamic combinations. But I got to say, Zach Cummings has been definitely putting in the work in the gym, and it's showing. Uh, Trevor Smith just absolutely ragdolled Joe Gelati, 30-26 uh, across the board. And then Marina Moroz defeated Daniel Taylor, Danielle Taylor. Um, split decision, 28-29, 29-28, 30-27 in one of the worst fights ever, where literally I believe Moroz set a record for the most number of missed shots. Not like shot shots, but like uh, punches, strikes. Uh, Court McGee defeated Dominic Steele, unanimous decision. Got the another workman-like thing for him in his hometown. Happy to see that. Uh, Marcin Tybera defeating Victor uh, Pesta. Uh, KO head kick. This was amazing. It was jab, cross, faint with the left. Not even faint, but like a like Paul with the left hook. Find it. Bang. Up come the uh, up the gut, essentially. Well, not to the gut, but essentially up the middle to the head kick. Boom. Perfect. Um, Brian Stan broke that one down perfectly. Hands were just there to get, um, you know, uh, the hands extended, essentially, of Pe of Pesta, and he paid for it. It was incredible. Uh, David Tamer defeated Josh Novelli. KO punches. 125 of the second round. By the way, Victor Pesta got put away at 53 of the second round. Uh, not too much to say there. Everyone's favorite womanizer. Taruto Ishihara defeated Horacio uh, uh, Gutierrez at 232 of the first. Gutierrez not using a ton of head movement. Coming forward. <clears throat> Ishihara backing up, backing up. You could see him time it perfectly. Eyes downfield, bang, throws the left and collapses him. Um, that was great. Good follow up. Ishihara had one takedown in there, a takedown attempt, I should say, where he literally like ran at Gutierrez and then like changed levels and it was easily stuffed. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a wild card that guy, but to keep your eyes open in the pocket, move space, move space, move space, boom, time the left for a guy who was kind of reaching and coming forward in a straight line. It was great, great job. There by um, Taruto Ishihara, the team alpha male guy. Okay. Then we move real quickly to the preliminary fight pass card. Going to do this backward because we're going to end on um, Swanson versus Kawajiri. Justin Ledette defeated Chase Sherman. Unanimous decision, 327 across the board. Justin Ledette's jab. Whoa. That was an excellent jab, man. Stinging, perfectly timed. Again, Brian Stan broke this one down really great. We always talked about it on the on this one. If someone's walking in kind of a rhythm, when do you strike them? You don't strike them on that rhythm. You strike them on the half beat. One, two, one, bang. That's when you hit him, and that's exactly when he hit him. He was constantly timing him before he could ever really set his feet. Drop on that rhythm, uh, and you know Sherman credits to him. He's got a hell of a chin and a forehead, but he was getting chewed to pieces. By that jab by Justin Legette. really good stuff. Um, the cross coming behind it, you know. And I think Brian Stan mentioned this too. A little bit of head hunting, I think, going on by Justin Lillard. I'm not sure why. I mean, if the target's open, keep throwing it, I suppose. You know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking. But for a UFC debut, check out Justin Ledet, man. If you're a Fight Pass customer and you missed this fight, go back and check it out. You don't see heavyweights with jabs like this. Really, really nice stuff from him. I was very impressed. Um, obviously, a long way to go, but... Um, Guy's got a killer attitude. He uh, trains with Brian Jennings, I believe, or at least has in the past. He's just, he's got some skills. So, um, heads up on Justin Ledet. We'll see what he can do with his career. All right, so let's do this very quickly. Just take a look at Cub Swanson defeating Tatsuya Kawajiri. Now he won 
29-28. I think I had a 30-27 as well. But there was just one thing that I thought I thought was mentioned throughout. Um, Cub Swanson is similar in this regard to Yair Rodriguez, which is to say Swanson hasn't changed his style much at all. But he has come sl- become slightly more judicious with the way he throws strikes. And that has paid off. Um, and he's gotten better at takedown defense. But I saw some people commenting to me, you know, what, hey, can you talk about how much um, Cub Swanson's takedown defense has improved? And the answer is, yes, I can. But we also have to be complimentary of what Frankie Edgar was able to show. So I think the answer here, and I'm about to show why I think this. The answer for Cub Swanson is, if someone asked me, has his takedown defense improved? The answer is, absolutely no question about it. Is it also true that the kind of threats Kawajiri was um, offering, they're just not as dynamic as what Frankie Edgar can offer? That is also true. So let's take a look at that, and I'll show you what I mean. All right, real quickly, let's just look at uh, what happened with uh, Swanson and Edgar, and then we'll look at Swanson and Kawajiri very briefly. Not not a whole lot to this. There are can- There's one camp that argues, look, Swanson's takedown defense has improved. There's another one that argues, well, you know, Look how much better Frankie Edgar is than Kawajiri. And they're both right. I just want to spotlight a couple of things. Now, Edgar's takedowns generally in this fight are much more sophisticated. He did have one blast double. But this kind of sequence will show you why both camps are right. So here we have Swanson. He launches an uppercut. It misses. Edgar gets his head off of this and then attempts a takedown. He shoots in off of a right side punching attack. And he immediately gets underneath. He's going to wrap him up here. Now here's what you're going to see. He's going to get underneath. From here, if he digs as deep enough, there's all kinds of takedowns you can do. Daniel Cormier loves his position. One hit, far hand around the hip, one hand underneath. Dig that elbow underneath. You can lift and turn and dump him. I think he did that to Josh Barnett as well. You know, look up your head, lift your head up, look across the back, and you can pick him up. And dump. I mean, there's a, a, any number of things you can do with this one. What you see from Swanson, and maybe the photo slides just don't do it justice. He does seem preoccupied with how his hips are being controlled, but he seems much more preoccupied with getting his hands in the right places in terms of getting a a forearm in front of Edgar's face or bicep control or something. He just doesn't move his feet a lot. These kind of stay relatively stationary. He doesn't get this leg up on the outside of here to block it. He doesn't push down the head and try to get his turn and get his hips away or turn and get away and then come back and then dig an underhook and like constantly fight. He just has really kind of semi-static takedown defense. Now, again, Edgar's going to do something pretty sophisticated here. He's going to go clockwise and straight and then counterclockwise to put him down. So Edgar's going to go straight one direction and then another direction, which is why this takedown is much more sophisticated. And so when folks say, well, look, Frankie Edgar's going to take him down, it's going to be different than Kawajiri taking him down. And they're absolutely right. This is a much more sophisticated, dynamic, mobile, active kind of takedown. No doubt about it. But you just see you just see Swanson kind of relent to the process because he's not fighting it with the same kind of intensity. He's only doing half the number of things. He doesn't really move his feet all that well. He doesn't really get his turn and get his hips and push down the head of Frankie Edgar. He just... He just kind of gets overwhelmed pretty quickly by it. That's very different than what happens with Kawajiri. Same, now, look, he doesn't throw an uppercut here, but same side, right side. Kawajiri ducks the punch. And look how deep he is on his shot, man. Like, that left hand is not really in front. I mean, the forearm's kind of there on the head. It's not really in front of it. Um, and you see Kawajiri get deep in on him here. Now, he's kind of, you know, he got that bad deadlift form kind of back there, but, you know, you want a straight neutral spine if at all possible. But, um, 
He's, I mean, that's a well-timed shot. I think anyone would agree that's a very well-timed shot. So let's see what happens here. Now, there's a couple of mistakes here, but here's the first one I want you to notice. What's the first thing you see from uh, from Swanson? His feet move. See that? They both get back. His hips coming down. He's going to put weight down on this. And what's going to wind up happening is he's going to actually keep Kawajiri in place. Kawajiri does this bit where he shoots into you, tries to get a better grip, and then reclaims the shot. He doesn't keep his feet moving. That is terrible. Now, he probably gets away with it because he's super strong and he can make this work. But I don't think there's going to be a wrestling coach alive that says, unless you're really advanced, don't do that. You Go back and watch St. Pierre's takedowns against Tiago Alves. His feet never stop moving. They're always in motion. Kawajiri gets a deep shot, and you can see he gets some a decent wrap of the legs here. You'll see that in just a minute. But he stops. Now, partly he stops, I think, because... Swanson's reactive decision-making forces him to, but nevertheless. So now he's going to try and come up, and you can see Swanson's thinking about what to do here. Do I put the hand in front of the face? Do I push the head back down? Do I want to get ready for a switch? What do I want to do? But his feet are getting further and further apart. Kawajiri comes up. Now he's pressing on the head. He's separating the head from his own body. When, whenever you're having a takedown, you want that ear on the inside of their hip, you need that, A, for your neutral spine alignment. You don't have a neutral spine. You can't lift the same kind of weight. Imagine trying to uh, lift weights with your head being pushed to one side. It would really affect your balance and everything else. It's very, very difficult. Um, but it's not necessarily enough to stop someone. But you can see he's, not, he's on his toes here. He's not really on his toes here. He's sort of like on the outside of his toes. And he's definitely on both knees. This is going to give Cub an advantage. But it's an advantage that Cub, remember, also helped create. So Kawajiri keeps pressing forward. Cub still thinking about what he wants to do, staying calm, not letting his feet get all torn up, which I really appreciate, and he's still moving them the whole time. Now Kawajiri is on his feet, and he's going to drive. He's going to pick up, lean, and drive, and he's going to do it at a doubled angle. So Kawajiri shot this way. He shot sort of towards this Utah Sports Commission sign, and he's going to double off towards the Bud Light sign. Remember, you can do a blast double backwards, but the best way to do it is to make contact and then double off at a right angle. That's the best way to make a, a, a shot happen. So he's going to double off this way. He's going to pick him up. Swanson, first of all, puts in the emergency break. Cup Swanson's trying to get a hand in front of the face. Can't necessarily quite do it. But nevertheless, this is going to prevent this is going to prevent Kawajiri from getting that huge, big turning lift where they can, you know, uh, Freddie Serrano style, pick you up and turn you and then slam you as they land into side control. You may still get taken down this way, but you won't necessarily end up in a, bat, a worse position. This will at least help you retain guard or butterfly guard or something along those lines. But Cub Swanson is super smart, man. What does he do? Because Kawajiri can't get quite get that lift, they land on this 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 uh, right leg of Swanson and watch the right hand of Swanson. He plants this. Now, what does this allow him to do? He's going to bump his hips forward, and he's going to use this leg to kick out. And that's going to cause uh, Kawajiri to get off balanced. It's not a full sweep. You'll see it doesn't. It's not like a t judo throw exactly. It's more like a an off balancing, just just a little bit. But this hand is planted. Kawajiri's got both of his hands C gripped here, right? So his hands aren't free to post. That leaves the post hand free of Swanson. And here's what happens. And you can already see what we're in motion here. But before you just don't even look at this leg, whose hips are fa closest to facing the mat? Swanson's. Look at his. His are facing like the upper tier of the octagon or something. And so he takes this moment. Who's got the higher hips and the heavier hips and the more the hips that the gravity are facing? Um, 
and who just has the better reaction decision making here bang and he comes over into mount so this tells you a few things one Kawajiri's takedowns are just not as sophisticated as Frankie Edgar's however it is also true that not merely did he get Swanson his feet always in motion from the word go but doing stuff like this, separating the head from the body, pushing on it, creating, forcing a non-neutral spine or an angled off spine. He was really, really good about that. The takedown defense of, of, um, of uh, Cub Swanson here, definitely a work in progress, but definitely, I should mention, a work in, quote, progress, underscore progress. He definitely is getting better. And last but not least, uh, our third segment where we look ahead to the big MMA this weekend. There really is none. There are, of course, going to be a bunch of MMA shows across the country or the planet, I suppose. But there's no World Series of Fighting, no Bellator, and there's no UFC. So what will we do for the Monday Morning Analyst? We will do Aldo versus Edgar. You guys have been waiting for it. You've been asking for it. On Monday, you will have it. That will get us ready, of course, for Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz. Now, that is not going to be at a featherweight fight. But, of course, it does actually have featherweight implications. And um, certainly the winner of that bout, Jose Aldo, is maybe next in line for Conor McGregor. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine on that one. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that'll be a good time to squeeze it in there. It's the one weekend where we don't have a UFC event, I think, until like October or something. So um, it's going to be now or never. So we'll get that in on Monday. I appreciate you guys being patient and waiting for that. Um, UFC 202 is the weekend after next. We'll focus on that in the next Monday Morning Analyst. Any corrections, comments, questions? Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Thank you guys so much for watching. Please give it a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Share it. Appreciate it. And until next time, enjoy the fights.